and we'll dive right in. Father in heaven, wow, we come to you. Um, I don't even know where my thoughts are right now. I think I'm feeling a little anxious being up here, a little excited to look out on a full room and students who are navigating their way through a new semester. And I, I, I pray for them. I pray that they would have ears to hear you tonight, that they would not hear me, that I would get out of the way, that the beauty and magnificence of King Jesus would be high and lifted up for them, that they would know of his love, that they would know of his transforming power, and that their relationships might be changed. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, relationships. Uh, we're going through a new, new series this semester in our youth uh, on your relationships. Last week we looked at what was beautiful and, and magnificent about them, that you were made for them because God is triune and he made you in his image. And so you're made to be in community with each other. And that's awesome. So tonight uh, we're looking at well, what, what's messed up about your relationships? Why are they not always kind of hunky-dory all the time? I really, I really want to be original here at the start. I was, I was listening to Richie Sessions at um, Vanderbilt. He does RUF at Vanderbilt. And I was hearing him preach the same exact sermon. And he used this illustration. And I was like, oh, that's so perfect. I got to use it. And so literally all credit to him for a lot of this sermon. But especially this, this illustration. He quotes Taylor Swift. I'm not going to quote an artist at the beginning of every sermon um, all semester, so don't be like, <laughs> I quote Olivia Rodrigo last week. But um, yeah, some of y'all may, may know Taylor Swift, right? Pretty famous. Uh, Tay Day, she, she sings in one of her older songs, she sings this, quote, because baby, now we got bad blood. You know, it used to be mad love. So take a look at what you've done. Because, baby, now we've got bad blood. Hey, now we got problems. I don't think we can solve them. You made a really deep cut. And, baby, now we got bad blood. Hey, end quote. I think it's so easy to copy Richie and quote Taylor Swift um, because, like, what better way to describe the pain and messiness of your relationships than, than bad blood, right? Like, relationships, the very like life-giving, vital thing you need to like navigate your way through life. Just like blood, right? It's, it's pretty akin to like what blood is for your body. And uh, right, like if that's the case, then the never-ending conflict with your parents, the sudden unexpected absence of like a friendship or getting dumped in uh, like a dating relationship Right? It, it turns this blood that's so life-giving, these relationships that are so life-giving, that are so needed, right? it turns it bad. So you rage, you cry, you isolate, you binge, you grow insecure. And you guys are looking at me like, yeah, Captain Obvious, <laughs> of course that happens. But like, have you ever, have you ever like, really thought about what happens to you in these moments? Like what happens to you on the inside? I'm tempted to say, like, our text tonight might be single-handedly, like, the most important chapter in the entire Bible. Like, if you want to make sense of yourself, if you want to make sense of the world, and, and actually, and this might seem ironic, like, if you want to make sense of where hope is to be found. And so, for those of you who have been around RUF, I think this is, like, 
sermon number four I've preached in Genesis 3. Last winter semester, we, uh, we went through a God the Questioner series, and God asked a lot of questions in Genesis 3. And so, like, y'all know I can nerd out with some Genesis 3. Like, you sit me down for an hour, and you're like, hey, Robert, talk to me about Genesis 3. I will dump nerdy mess on you. Like, it will be really fun for me, and maybe not so much fun for you. But, um, but tonight, I kind of want to take the conversation in a different direction. What does the shame of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the covering of the fig leaves and the hiding from God, like, what does it do to Adam and Eve's relationship to each other? What does it do to your relationships? Like, is the Bible relevant for your life? I want to argue it is. Because I think the Bible is laying forth this case that, like, in a prime evil garden, there's this catastrophic, monumentous, earth-shattering event that fundamentally explains why your relationships uh, have been poisoned. And like, look, even if you're the type that's like really agreeable and, you know, you have a bazillion friends and you're like, Robert, I don't like the conflict you're talking about. I don't. That's not me. Can I ask you a question? Like, why? Why is maintaining those relationships still so hard? Why is it so easy to have like your actions or your words misunderstood? And like Christian types, I think like y'all might be tempted to say, well, like. Robert, sin. Like, it's all sin, and, like, sin ruins everything. It's just sin, and, like, let's just call a day, end in prayer. But what I want you to see is that, like, the destruction of Genesis 3 and the destruction it brings upon our relationships, yes, it's called sin, but until we see and, like, actually feel the destructive consequences of sin— like, we're never going to actually crave the redemptive power the gospel brings into our relationships. Like, you will always intellectualize your problems away instead of, like, hungering to experience the healing for those problems. Like, I, I see this in Christians all, all the time. Like, I'll be sitting down with maybe one of you. And you can give me, like, the Sunday school intellectual answer to your life. Right? And, and like assume because like maybe I know this or we know this or we think we know this. Like problem is at best solved, move on, and maybe at worst like manageable. You know, I just need to like repent and like read my Bible and pray more and like go to church. And... But like listen to Eugene Peterson. He uh, paraphrases the Bible in a popular translation called The Message. This, this is how he paraphrases Romans 1, 28 through 32. And so he says, he says, Human beings in their rebellion brought hell upon the earth. Rampant evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering and cheating. They keep inventing new ways of wrecking lives. End quote. Look, y'all, I don't say that to, to make you feel worse about yourself. I, like, I, I really don't. I'm, of, I'm actually of the opinion that, like, you actually know all that. You feel it. You experience it. I read this because I want you to see that, like, the effects and the poison of Genesis 3 are so, are so ingrained and deeply rooted into every relationship that you have. That there's actually, there's actually like, nothing you can do to fix this hell on earth. There's nothing you can do to fix this hell on earth. And you only make it worse by trying. 
But here's, here's why I think like, that's actually like, good news. A lot of y'all are looking at me like, wow, what Debbie Downer tonight? Here's why that's good news. God has already done something. God has already done something to fix this hell on earth. He's already done something to like redeem your relationships. And so that's where we're going tonight. My two points are the stain of bad blood. And point number two is the hope for bad blood. My first point begins in, in verse seven. Then the eyes of both were open. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I actually had a, a secular atheist friend once. I was in a fantasy baseball league with him. And he found out I was a pastor. And so he's, he's telling me about what you know, he thinks about Christianity. And he goes, yeah, the whole problem with the garden is, I actually think that's like great. But like their eyes were opened. They were enlightened. They could see what God saw. Like whereas before, like God was holding back on them. Like, they made a way for themselves. I don't know what you believe tonight, but, like, hopefully you follow with me that, like, this is absolutely, positively the worst thing that could have ever happened to Adam and Eve, to mankind. Like, no matter how you slice it. Like, there was actually wisdom to what God had said about not eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Well, like, they, they sew fig leaves together, right, to cover up their nakedness. Like, they are, they are ashamed of themselves for being human. They hide from God, right? But, like, hopefully you see by them also covering up themselves and hiding their nakedness, like, they are now hidden from one another. Yes, like, physically, and we can giggle about it, right? Like, but also in all the other ways. Like, that, the... Hiding from each other is so much more transformative than now they're wearing clothes. They're ashamed of being human, like dirty. Have you ever felt like that? Like, like there's just something about you that's just like dirty. You look in the mirror and you're like, I hate my face. Why is my nose like that? I mean, y'all, this is like <laughs> probably middle school for all maybe most of us, some of y'all might have been cool in middle school. Um, but this was like my entire high school and, and even, I'm like embarrassed to say, even like college, I would spend way too much time in front of the mirror, super insecure. But like, it's because of verse seven. It's because of verse seven that like we look in the mirror and we don't like what we see, maybe physically, but maybe we remember like that dumb thing we thought we said. Who are you? I hate myself. You feel exposed. Right? And like that's when you begin to like compare yourself to others. It's this moment of like, does anybody else feel this way? Like I'm looking at you guys right now. I'm like, you guys feel this way? <laughs> Is this just me? Toxic shame. It's the human condition. I'm like, Instagram wouldn't tell you that, but like that's a whole nother sermon. All right, and like this is especially true when it comes to our nakedness. Who we are as individuals, what we are like at our core. Um, you know, I, I think like the stereotype of this picture is, you know, you have a dream about showing up to school naked or something and everybody's laughing at you. I've never really had that dream. Maybe, maybe you guys have. 
The dream I have, <laughs> the dream I have is uh, I show up to large group and I don't have my sermon notes. And you guys are all kind of looking at me. And I'm like, Jesus. And like, there's just, <laughs> there's just this moment where I feel exposed. Because you know what? It's like, I, I actually really enjoy standing up here and like appearing to you like I'm competent. Appearing to you like, you know, I'm this competent pastor who somewhat has like his life figured out or something. Like for me to be ex- exposed would be for y'all to see how actually incompetent I am. How much of my life is, is oftentimes a mess from day to day. But hopefully you see like, that's actually what's wrong with me. It's the fact that like, I have this fear. I have this fear that like you would see me exposed. But, and, and like, that's what's wrong with you. It goes all the way back to our very first parents and their need to hide from God and from one another because they were ashamed. And so now that shame, that, that bad blood, you could say, has been passed down to us. All right, but like shame is not the only thing we see out of Adam and Eve, do we? Something else we see. All right, after they feel shame, they immediately hide. Verse 8 catalogs that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Other scholars have noted that it's the first time that we see human beings using the created order to hide their nakedness. You guys see it all the time walking around campus. It's, it's the game we play. But this is the first time. Right? Like before in Genesis 1 and 2, they were just walking around naked everywhere. Like no objectification, no nothing. Just pretty content with it all. Now they have to hide their nakedness. And like, what do they use to do that? Fig leaves. And like, y'all, if you've ever seen fig leaves, like these things are pretty, pretty big. They, they sew these huge leaves together and boom, new spring fashion series. Like, we're scared of being exposed by God, so we continue to pile on the layers. It's kind of like Michigan in January. You forget what your skin looks like because you got eight layers on. But we do the same thing when we hide our shame. We do this and that and, you know, this other thing, and we pile on the layers. We pile on the layers to keep us from being exposed to who we really are. So now, like, under all these layers of your shame, you can hide by, like, managing your image with one another. You can perfectly craft what your layers look like. It's not so much that you're wearing layers, it's what do they look like? Right? And your friends do the same. Like I said, it's the game we play. It's why we fake smile when our friend tells a joke. It's why we compete. Is that just me? Y'all just laugh at me. Um, it's why we compete to like, make the best grades. And it's why we're jealous like, when someone else gets the internship for the summer. Like, and there's nothing real about that. There's nothing real or authentic to this game we play. And like, you know it. I feel like the past two minutes I've been just saying things where you're like, yeah, dude. I'm not saying anything earth shattering right now. You know it. You feel it. But you can't stop playing. Like, it's all you know. Look, y'all, <laughs> I hate, I hate the fact that, like, I can post in the group me, you know, like, hey, me at this place, we're going to do this thing. 
And, like, I find myself constantly checking who liked it. <laughs> like, why didn't so-and-so like it? Are they, are they like, coming, still coming to this thing? Are they, what's going on here? And, like, but, like, I don't know how to stop doing that. Do you know how to stop doing Like, can someone teach me how to stop doing that? I don't know how to stop doing that. And, like, I've tried. Trust me. I've really tried to, like, not care as much. Go all stoic on you guys. I don't care what 18-year-olds think, you know? Right? Like, I try to cover up the toxic shame, and I can't. I keep looking to see who liked the groupie message. And some of y'all might say, like, geez, Robert, like, lighten up on yourself. I mean, that's just kind of normal, right? Like, everybody kind of feels that way. And again, that's my point. It's like, why is that normal? Why does it have to be normal? So what Brendan Manning refers to as the imposter self. He says, quote, The imposter self lives in fear. The imposter is consumed with a need for acceptance and approval. The imposter is codependent, in other words, out of touch with his or her own feelings. The imposter's life is a herky-jerky existence of elation and depression. The imposter is what he or she does. The imposter demands to be noticed. The imposter cannot experience intimacy in any relationships. And last but not least, the imposter is a liar. End quote. Some of y'all may hear this and think, that's just kind of who I am. Like, the imposter is me. I constantly have to be this other person. Do you see it? Like, that's a fig leaf. That, like, those are layers and layers of, of fig leaves. You don't even know what your own skin looks like. Because there's so many layers of fig leaves on. You do not know who you are without your shame. You don't know how to not hide. But here's how this all affects your relationships, right? Because this is a series on relationships after all. And, and here's how it affects it in like a super practical and extremely noticeable way. Insecurity. Like the fragile insecurity that y'all bring into your relationships. That I bring into my relationships. Les Newsome, he's a former RUF campus minister at Ole Miss. He's got this to say about insecurity. He says, insecurity is the number one killer of relationships. The fear of breaking up, the fear of being embarrassed, the fear of pain, the fear of being alone, the fear of exposure, the fear of being perceived to be a failure is what kills relationships. For most of your relationship, what is wrong with them is not that you don't care about them. It's that you care too much about them. We have our whole beings invested in the permanence of these relationships. When you are most insecure, what do you fear your friend or your girlfriend or your boyfriend loves more than you? It's like this kind of insecurity that leads to what one Princeton psychologist refers to as a suicide. Like, just even saying that word, do you, do you kind of know what I'm talking about? A suicide. It's assuming the worst about people. Bad blood, shame, hiding. 
assuming the worst. Like, why are they responding to my text? I bet they're hanging out with so-and-so. You know what? I knew it. I knew it. So-and-so is just prettier and funnier than me. Of course, like, she would want to be friends with her. I bet he likes her. I bet we were never friends. Here she, they were just faking it. I can't believe it. I'm so dumb. They think I'm dumb. I hate this. I never want to feel this again. Like, I'm out. And like, the funny thing about a suicide is that more times than not, like, the other person probably just left their phone at their apartment or something, right? Then you, like, get a text back and you think, wow, I hated that person for, like, a whole afternoon. Like, I want you to die. Like, I, I hated you. Then you feel terrible, right? Like, you feel terrible. You're like, whoa, why did I have those thoughts? And I can't stress this enough, y'all. Like, it all goes back to the garden. Insecurity leads to a suicide because the bad blood, because of the bad blood, like, we're always going to go for the nuclear option. Like, a couple of y'all laughed when I was like, I want to kill you. Like, y'all, we go A to Z real quick. It's kind of like assassins, right? Like, kill or be killed in relationship. But let's look, like, let's look at, like, what a suicide does. Like, it either does two things. It leads you either into isolation where, like, you won't let anybody ever come close to you ever again. Like, you're done with the relationship. You're done trusting friends. You're done trusting, you know, like, the whole dating thing. You're like, I'm not going to touch that. So it leads you into isolation because, like, if someone leaves you, joke's on them, right? Like, I never actually got close to you. You actually don't know me. But, like, that's actually not what happens. Because it's in isolation that, like, you're going to binge on porn. You're going to binge on Netflix. You're going to binge on TikTok. Isolation is what, like, leads you to actually having a bazillion friends. Because you can hide in plain sight. You can bounce from one to the next to the next to the next. And no one actually ever knows you. Like, remember, you weren't made for isolation. So you'll try to, like, cover up that shame, that toxic shame in other ways. If we're being honest with ourselves, right, like, it kind of makes it worse. So either, either you go and you isolate, or it leads you into, like, a suffocating clinginess where you suck all the oxygen out of a relationship. Like, the hiding place you're in is, is like, really scary and real. Like, God is absent. God doesn't see you. And, like, you'll do anything to be rescued. Like, I think this question in verse 9 is actually worth revisiting. Where are you? Where are you tonight in your relationships? Maybe you're stuck, like, imagining a, a perfect future for yourself. I do this all the time, guys. Like, my wife jokes whenever we go on a date. I'm like, well, you know, in, like, five years we could be doing this and that. And Maybe that's you. Like, in high school, you couldn't just wait to get to college. Like, gosh, I'm so mature. These people are, like, you know, beneath me. I need to get to college and be with those, like, mature Michigan students. Right? In college, like, you can't just wait to begin your career. You're like, I'm over this place. I want to move. So you start your career, right? Like, you can't wait to, like, be married and have kids and buy the minivan. 
Like no one ever says that, but but like you can't you can't wait for that, right? It never ends. You you want a future version of yourself that you don't hate. It never comes. The toxic shame remains. But what I want you to see y'all is like do you see that we'll do anything to be rescued? We'll do anything to be rescued from our hiding places. Anything. It's literally why, like, the only game my son wants to play is where we pretend we are the Paw Patrol, and we go and we <laughs> save the day. Like, he gets really excited about rescuing people. And you know why? You know why, like, that show is, like, captivating for three-year-olds? Or seven-year-olds? I don't know. <laughs> It's because even at three years old, he has an acute awareness, like, uh, things are broken. Things are severely broken. And someone, someone has to come in and and rescue. Maybe it's the Paw Patrol, but it's not going to be Mayor Goodway. It's not going to be an ordinary Joe like you or me. Someone's got to come in and do it. And so, like, what's the hope for our bad blood? This is my second point, is, all right, the hope for bad blood. If Genesis 3 is, is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, well, Genesis 3.15 is certainly one of the most important verses in the Bible. Actually, I'll go out on a limb and say maybe it's the most important verse in the Bible. There's a lot of them. That's tough, but I'm going to go with it. The most important verse in the Bible, right? Like, it's right here. It's right here in the middle of Genesis 3. Only a few verses after the bad blood is introduced, that there is a promise to one day fix the bad blood. You could say it's the first gospel promise. God is speaking to Satan and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what we see throughout the rest of the Bible is this battle being fought between the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman of the serpent, right? Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Moses and Pharaoh. The list goes on. It's called seed theology. If you're really into this, again, I'll nerd out on you. But like, this is why Abraham is such a big deal, y'all. God is promising, it's it's through Abraham that the seed of the woman is going to come and one day crush the head of the serpent. Right? And then Abraham laughs. Because he's old and like, how's that going to happen? That's what Isaac's name means, is, is laughter. Right? Like Abraham, as he's called back to the place of the original Garden of Eden. At least that's what most scholars think, is that Jerusalem and around the Temple Mount was where the original Garden of Eden was. And I don't know anything about Pangea, so like don't, I don't know how that works. Right? So like, you have this fascination of land Throughout the Old Testament, we actually went through that last semester in life groups in Joshua. This is like obsession with land. And us modern types are like, what, why, this makes no sense. Obsession with like the land of Canaan. God's people eventually settle there. The Temple Mount is there. And it's on one random night on a hillside in Bethlehem in the city of David that there is a son born of a woman and he's put into a dog bowl. And he grows up to do battle with Satan in the wilderness. Literally, Mark 1, 12 verses in, 14 verses in. He comes back and he goes, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. 
victory won. It's a statement of victory right from the get-go. And then literally the rest of Mark, the rest of the Gospels, we see the cross looming. We see the cross off. It's a victory march to the cross. It's a victory march to pain and suffering and death. It's a victory march to vulnerability and weakness because the promise has to be fulfilled. He shall bruise the serpent's head and crush him once and for all. But Satan has to bruise his heel, so Jesus loses his life. The death of Jesus Christ upon a cross means that for your relationships, his good blood washes away all the bad blood. Because that's like, that's what it had to take. Someone who knew no sin had to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, someone who had good blood, the only person on the face of the earth to ever actually have good blood, because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He had good blood. He actually had to become bad blood and be forsaken by God and others and his relationships. He had to be forsaken in order that you might be accepted before God and experience the restorative healing in your relationships with other people. We'll get to this in a few weeks, but like, you want to know why the Bible commands Christians to marry other Christians? It's the reality that like, only the blood of Jesus can bring hope for a long-lasting, life-giving, and deeply intimate marriage. Only Jesus can bring good blood into a relationship between two people who have otherwise tarnished it with their bad blood. Like, because that's the thing. This is not my notes, but... We talk about community a lot in RUF because we believe we're made for community. It's in community that we experience God and we experience the gospel. But here's the thing I don't like about community is as soon as like I become friends with some of y'all and we do life for a long period of time and you can talk to the juniors. I've I've known them now for two and a half years is that uh, there will be conflict that happens. Um, (laughs) I'll say something and there'll be conflict and like, any relationship you're in, you have already ruined. Bad blood. And like, the reality is I don't believe that because <laughs> I think I'm awesome. <laughs> but like, conflict shouldn't surprise us. Bad blood shouldn't surprise us. Jesus is the only one who brings good blood into a relationship. So the promise in Genesis 3.15 is a promise that someone is going to make everything right. Someone is going to take away the toxic shame. Someone is going to end the great divorce. Someone is going to bring us back to the garden. Someone is going to end the suicide. Someone is going to free you to neither isolate or suffocate your relationships. So believing and knowing and following it like this Jesus of Nazareth is an ultimate game changer. Like the joy to the Christian life is, is like these truths actually do sink in to change us. Here's the thing, Brene Brown, leading expert on shame. I don't even know if she's a Christian. I think she's in Houston. But she says, like, the power to your shame is vulnerability. Like, weakness. Like, telling y'all that, like, I obsessively check group me because I'm insecure. Like, the power to, like, your shame dissolving is through getting vulnerable with each other. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God really does cover our shame. He did in Genesis 3.21 for Adam and Eve. 
And he does so for you tonight through the blood of Jesus. And like, look, I'm not going to pretend I have a perfect marriage at all. We have our mess. We would love to invite you into our lives. You can see us fight. It's, it's a marriage, right? Like, but I've been married to Catherine five and a half years at this point. And when she looks at me like she did the other night and all my insecurity, that look pierces me. I know like when I'm with her, I am loved in a way that reveals Jesus. You see, like, the point, this isn't about, like, you should get married, therefore, right? Like, marriage is great, but it's not for everybody. The point is to know this type of love in your relationships. Because when this level of love soaks into your very being, it absolutely, fundamentally will always change the way you do relationship. It just does. Like, you aren't insecure, or at least you're less insecure. You're freed to be insecure, It's more scary to isolate. Like the whole isolation thing is scary now than it is to be known by other people. You can see a suicide for what it is, right? It's it's silly. Do you know the heights and the depths and the riches of God's love for you tonight in Jesus Christ? Do you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you...